Father, we are um, we're conscious that at so many levels in our lives we're running against um, the tides. And that's sometimes exhilarating. It's also sometimes deeply challenging. And Lord, we, we acknowledge that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. The whole of the Christian life involves the surrender of our mind, of our imagination, of our desire, of our will to you. And pray that as we, I ask you, Lord, that as we engage with this vital subject, that, Father, you would empower me and fill us as a congregation with your spirit, that we'd understand the mind of God, that we'd have wisdom, that we'd have your grace to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read to you the first four verses of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. It says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and then it begins with the bride speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So the book unfolds. We're not going to spend any time uh, opening it up, but the book unfolds as a love story. And uh, brings us to this theme. We've so far looked at two potential destinations in the Christian life. Of singleness and of marriage as uh, two states in which God's blessing can flow to you and through you. And uh, we wanted to focus on the journey towards marriage, which I think is a high-stakes game. Uh, It's full of uh, exhilaration and excitement, interest. Um, I think, you know, I don't need to labor that point. You all know how interesting this subject is, especially if you're a single person. But it's also full of risk, isn't it? And uh, potential hazards along the way of the danger of broken hearts, of, uh, um, of consciences that get um, hurt and damaged by actions that you regret, all kinds of, of risks. In that sense, it's a bit like um, free climbing with no ropes. You feel that you are engaging in something which is um, potentially risky to you, but full of excitement along the way. And it seems to me that, um, <clears throat> you know, what, what is a what church doing talking about this stuff? Um, it seems to me that there's a more urgent need now than ever for us to start thinking about how Christians and how we should approach this subject because we're more clueless than ever in the world at large. There's a biologist and a sex researcher called Justin Garcia in the United States and he said this, he said, we're in uncharted territory, he's talking about society at large, when it comes to Tinder, etc., He says, there have been two major transitions in heterosexual mating in the last four million years. Uh, The agricultural revolution, when we became less migratory and more settled, and the rise of the internet. I don't know whether he's overstating that, but it really does provoke us to think about what a unique point in history we live in, even if you disagree with some of his basic premises. I think that as Christians, obviously we're coming at this from a very, very different perspective, but we're vulnerable on multiple levels here. We're vulnerable uh, to sin by acting unrighteously in relationships. And uh, anyone who's been in a relationship will understand that there are, 
There are so many challenges on that front. We're vulnerable to sin by being drawn into relationships that are displeasing to God and that potentially can draw you away from him. I think possibly this has been one of the most um, saddening things that I've seen multiple times over the years in church is where a lot of people find that their faith is, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, it's wreckage on the rocks because of, um, because of romantic attraction to someone who really derails them, I suppose. And we're also just vulnerable because, you know, if you're not in a relationship or whatever relationship you're in <clears throat> ends badly, the danger of falling into self-pity and then of being angry with God as a result is huge. So I, I really feel like we have, to, we have to talk about this and think about this. And I know that some of you are already married. So you're thinking, flippin' heck, why did I come to church today? And I need to just say to you, um, <clears throat> you might have kids is one thing. I believe that we need to prepare kids young to prepare their minds and hearts for the world in which they live. I'm very grateful to my parents that they shaped our thinking on this very early on in life. And that's your job. And also, the reality is that a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, are going to look at you as the experts. And uh, you may have made a proper hash of it. I don't know. But um, you're going to be looked at that way. So you need, to ha- you need to think this stuff through and understand that you are disciple makers if you belong to the kingdom. So your job is to get tooled up, prepared to help others. And we always ought to have that mindset when it comes to all kinds of matters in the Christian life. So uh, just firstly on my credentials, <clears throat> I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually married the first girl I dated, so, um, and we're still married. Um, we met um, uh, 15 years ago and married uh, 12 years ago. And some of you are thinking, well, what on earth does he have to say on this subject then? This, who is this guy? For one thing, he's too old, and another, he's too inexperienced. And um, I might agree with you to some extent, but the, other, the flip side to it is that the stuff that I'm about to teach you does actually work. So um, I, I really believe that the principles that God will give us on this matter are, are um, full of wisdom and can help us. So what does the Bible have to say on the reality of dating and courtship? And at one level you can say, well, it has nothing to say because dating didn't exist in the world in which the Bible was written. And it's a very recent and modern phenomenon, isn't it, in, in the way that we understand it today. On the other hand, you could say, well, look, the entire Bible is about this subject. That's one way of reading the Bible, is to understand that it is one great courtship. And uh, really, we're wanting to seek the heart of God and the wisdom and the mind of God on what love is and how you approach this subject. So, what I want to do is think about three big questions. We're going to start with the question of what you look for in a spouse, uh, which is kind of logically tied in with what we were thinking about last week. Uh, Then we're going to think about, well, how do you go about finding somebody? And then lastly, I want to think about how do you conduct yourself when you're in that situation of dating that's moving towards courtship and potentially marriage. So these are the three things I want to think about. First of all, beginning with the question of what you should look for in a spouse. And I think the matter has to begin here because uh, even if, um, you know, because if we think about it, marriage... Dating is not an end in itself. Dating is a means to an end. I know some people think of dating as a means to, 
as an end in itself. When people say, I'm just having fun right now, I'm not, I'm not interested in commitment. That, that's a view of dating which is an end in itself, which is a very long way away from the Christian point of view on these things. Marriage is the end if you're interested or uh, looking for a, a partner in life. Dating is just the means to an end. So we have to begin at the end and consider what is it that you're looking for in a spouse long before you, you think about, well, how do I go about engaging in this kind of relationship. Um, otherwise, it's just a foolish and selfish endeavor. When, my, um, when I was young, right, right from primary school age, our parents used to tell us, um, they, were, they were really clear on this. They said, you don't, we don't do dating unless you're re- ready to consider marriage. Which, when you're five, six, seven years of age, you, know, you're, you, think, okay, you, know, you think, well, isn't that a bit early? No, it, they, they put that into us. And... Um, and so really, you know, that, that obviously speaks to the whole question of when and uh, at what point in your life you're ready to consider a romantic relationship. And um, there was one occasion, my, I used to share a bedroom with my younger brother. Uh, we, we were slept on bunk beds and uh, we used to talk at night, as you do, and um, I used to see it as my role to, to teach him um, from, from a young age. Um, and... You know, when, one day at primary school, when he was probably he was probably about eight or so, something like that, um, he he came home and, and that night when we were, he told me how he had a girlfriend that day, and what had happened was um, he was in the playground and a girl called Jessica had had lined the boys up and just asked them one after another, "Will you go out with me? No. Will you go out with me? No. Will you go out with me? No." And she got to Joshua. He said yes, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so between, uh, I think between second and third period, he, they, were, they were dating. It wasn't a long-lasting relationship. But um, what, what, what happened was that when he got home and, and told me this, I wasn't, I wasn't very pleased. And uh, I, I gave him the lecture on how we only date girls if we're interested in potentially marrying them. And that was his first verbal warning. Um, so... This is where I'm coming from on this issue when I'm asking the question of, you start with the end in mind. And a couple of things I just want to mention on this, because there's, there's, a bun- there's so much stuff we could talk about, and I just really have to be very selective. I want to talk first about the place of attraction. Is a focus on physical attraction somehow unspiritual for a Christian? Now, if you're not a Christian, that is going to sound like the most ridiculous question you've ever heard asked. But bear with me. The situation is definitely more complicated by our crazy obsession these days with unrealistic ideals of beauty. We are an image-saturated culture, and unfortunately that shapes us. It shapes our expectations and desires and dreams more than we could possibly understand. And of course it's complicated even more by the widespread use of pornography in our day and age as a way of forming the imagination and expectations around a romantic relationship. But when it comes to the issue of the place of attraction in these things, I think this is one more example of how Satan takes what is good and distorts it for his own means. Everything good that we enjoy in this world is a gift from a generous, lavish father. And we begin with that assumption that all things are good and can be received with gratitude. And beauty is one of those things. So the Bible commends and endorses the reality of God-given attraction to beauty. The Song of Solomon goes on a little later when 
the bridegroom, the man, is describing uh, this bride. And he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I tried these lines on my wife once. They didn't, didn't land too well. Um, your teeth, I like this one the best, actually. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, or shorn sheep. Your teeth are like sheep, um, <clears throat> freshly shaven sheep as well, that have come up from the washing, all of which bears twins, and not one among them has lost its young. I love that. He's saying, you've got all your teeth. This is remarkable. I mean, I suppose this was amazing in the ancient world. If she kept all her teeth and they all matched and they were all, all sparkly white um, in the days before, you know, um, Colgate and the rest of it. So the Bible is, is really interested in this issue of attraction because it's a God-given reality. And I've got to say, you know, the first thing I knew about C uh, was that I found her attractive to look at. I didn't, I didn't know that she had a great personality, and I'm not using that facetiously. That's also true about her. Um, and I didn't know... You know, what I walked with God was like at that time. That would take time to discover and explore. But I just knew that she was beautiful. And she caught my eye across a crowded airport atrium, actually, at Stansted Airport. And um, I won't tell you the rest. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, that was the first thing. And just the mere affirmation of attraction is an important thing to state, I think, for Christians. Because... For one thing, it might allay your fears that God might want you to marry somebody unattractive. And, you know, that was my fear when I was a kid. I, uh, I, you know, I confessed this to my family. They mocked me mercilessly for a long time. Um, but, you know, I, it, was, it was the fear that, you know, you might be walking down the street one day and, and see somebody and, and then God might just go, She's the one. <laughs> and then you just feel that you had no option um, in the issue. So it lays that fear that, you know, attraction is part of God's means of drawing you to each other. And particularly as it becomes a sexual attraction on its way towards marriage. This is God's plan and God's design. 100% affirm that. I think it also has got to be said because it encourages, for those of us who are single and Frustratedly single, I think it can encourage a healthy attention to the matter of, of how you carry yourself and even of your appearance. These things are not irrelevant or unspiritual matters. They are important within reason. But evidently, physical attraction has to be put in its place. And the reasons we can multiply, but I'll give you a couple... We mentioned the Proverbs 31 wife last week. And that chapter, the end of Proverbs, ends on this note. It says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In other words, the Bible's warning about the insufficiency of physical attraction as a basis for a long-term relationship. The Bible also um, teaches us that physical attraction... You know, this, this really flies against the way our culture thinks, but teaches us that physical attraction is an active thing and not a passive thing. And what I mean by that is that we, we tend to assume that basically attraction is just something that happens to you and of, over which you have no power. 
And so maybe you feel attracted to someone for a season and then it withers and dies away. And there's nothing you can do about that. That's just the reality of hormones or whatever else you, you want to put it down to. The Bible doesn't accept that view. It says things like this in Proverbs 5. It says, let your fountain, talking to a man, let your fountain be blessed. It's a metaphor. And he says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In other words, I think he's talking to a man who's growing into older age. And he's saying, take delight. There's an act of the will that's involved in in attraction. And so we can never use it as an excuse for saying, well, look, the flame has gone. And and therefore, the marriage is somehow um, going to hit the rocks. And the Bible also teaches that inner beauty is a real thing. That it's not just a sob to people who, um, who feel unattractive. Say, look, just focus on, on the inner reality. Now, the Bible says this is a real thing. These verses, which are often scorned, um, but in 1 Peter 3, it says, do, it says to women, do not let your adorning be the external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And I know this, as I said, these verses are often scorned. And I I suppose I speak to the women at this point. If you don't understand what it's saying, you need to ask a man and and make sure that he's not afraid that you're going to bite his head off when you ask him the question. Um, And he will explain, I think. I think most men intuitively understand what this is talking about, what it is that that is attractive in a woman that has nothing to do with her appearance and everything to do with her, her conduct, her manner, her, the way she carries herself, and particularly towards you as a man. So when you're looking for a spouse, I want to start there and just affirm that, biblically speaking, attraction is fundamental. Here's another thing. Thinking about spirituality, spirituality and character now, on the one hand, it seems really unnecessary to labor this point because, um, for one thing, godly character is too broad a thing for me possibly to do justice to when we're thinking about this question. But I would just say, if you love Jesus, I think you'll be drawn to Christ-likeness when you're looking for a spouse. And a few comments, therefore, in order. Again, we've got to start with the end and work backwards here. If the mission of marriage is, as I was making a case last week, if the mission of marriage is to fulfill God's purposes on earth together as a couple, to extend his kingdom, to to bring multiplication to the work of God in the earth, if that is the mission of marriage and you start there, then then you work backwards and think, well, of course, the kind of person that that they are, their spirituality and their character is absolutely and utterly fundamental to the question of who you should marry. And I have to state this point because so many people these days discard and disregard this question when it comes to finding somebody to marry. There's a famous verse in 2 Corinthians 6 which says, where Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? A lot of people, you know, they they get into kind of um, sort of intellectual tangles asking, well, is Paul even talking about marriage there? 
But to my mind, that's, it's almost missing the point entirely. Because there is no form of yoking more powerful than the marriage relationship. And the image is a potent one because it's, it's, it's picturing the fact that you come into a working relationship when you bind yourself covenantally to another person, just like two animals bearing the wooden yoke jointly across their shoulders. Who you're yoked with is going to matter enormously. And the question of your, your sense of joy and purpose and mission and fulfillment in the years to come. The yoke is an instrument designed to create the maximum productivity with the minimum discomfort and chafing for the animals. And this is what Paul's image is about. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be trying to walk in different directions in life, if you don't fundamentally share the same basic passion to do God's will, you're going to experience enormous discomfort in the years that you're together. You ask yourself the question first and foremost, is this person's highest ambition to glorify God? I mentioned to you in the email I sent to the church on Friday how, you know, for, my, for, for me and my wife, for C, this has been a really, you know, vital, vital thing for us. Because, you know, the, the year I met C was the year she started medical school. And before I met her, she had in her mind and in her heart, I dreams of becoming a pediatrician. Now, to be a pediatrician takes something like nine years after you've done your junior and senior house officer years as a medic. So we're talking about about 16 years full-time to become a pediatrician uh, from the day you start med school and probably longer. And I mentioned to you how, you know, for us, we had to really wrestle with this because C was offered a peds training post in Canterbury. Uh, some years back, and tears were shed. It's not been the first time, the only time in our marriage around decisions to do with life direction, but it was one occasion. Tears were shed as she had to reject that offer because the deeper purpose in her heart and in our joint hearts was that we would be engaged in church leadership in central London and that we'd raise a family. And so she had to make a real sacrifice, you know, kill something, put something to death in order to enjoy something else. And, you know, has that been without regret? I'm not, I don't think that it's entirely without regret, but that's life, isn't it? The whole decision and the process was made much easier for us, at least, by knowing that we both stand on the same common ground. We're here to do God's will. Our life is not about us. It's not about our dreams, ambitions, or purposes. It's about fulfilling the will of the Lord. If you cannot even begin there with another person, then you you have very little hope of experiencing fulfillment and a joint sense of destiny in life, I don't think. The question then comes, well, how mature do they need to be? Just briefly, I, I don't think that maturity is the issue. I think trajectory is the issue. I think you can marry somebody who's relatively young in the faith, providing that they are hungry to grow. Your theology of roles is going to come in here as well. What I mean by that is that if you've paid attention to what the Bible has to say about that end product, the marriage itself, then you'll know that the Bible is very clear on the importance of 
of a husband's role under Christ to lead spiritually in the home and of a wife to, uh, to be not just a helper but to submit to his spiritual leadership. And this becomes a question when you're looking at a potential spouse. Because, you know, firstly thinking about the man. He might be godly on so many levels, but if he's unable to lead, he lacks the character, the conviction, the courage to, to lead, then he's not going to make a competent husband. He needs to be discipled towards that end somehow. And the reverse is true with a wife, isn't it? Now, another matter here is I think you have to consider the reputation and the opinion of others when you're considering who to marry. Attraction has the power of blinding you to the faults of the person that you're drawn to. It's a potent thing. I experienced that with attraction before I'd met C to, to someone else. And it would never have worked. But in the time, at the moment, you, know, you, you, become, you become foolish, don't you? Um, it is, I think Shakespeare said it was a temporary insanity. I think there's so much truth to that. There's a, the problem is when you get into a relationship, and the, the more you invest in it, the more important it is to listen to the voices of godly people around you because of the power of what the psychologists call sunk cost bias. You ever heard of this? It's a phenomenon in human decision making where if you've invested lots into something, you're very reluctant to let go of it, even if it's not going to do you good long term. Apparently, they say if, you, if a family had put aside their savings to... Uh, to go on holiday to Butlins, you know, nothing wrong with Butlins, but let's just say it's not the premium holiday destination, is it? So let's say they, they put the, all their family money into going on holiday to Butlins, and um, it's all they could afford, but they, they're really looking forward to it. If it just so happens that they win a competition to have a holiday in a way superior destination, uh, maybe center parks or maybe, maybe let, let's say, a resort abroad, and it's the same dates and they'd have to make a choice between the two options. Most people, and this beggar's belief, most people will choose the Butlins option because they've already paid for it and their money's gone into that option, even if the other one is all expenses covered. And that's just the human mind. If you put tons of time and energy into a relationship, it becomes more and more difficult to listen to wisdom around you. The Bible says in Proverbs 12, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Whose advice? Friends, first and foremost, your parents, if they love Jesus. Secondly, your pastor. Right, let's move on. <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff we can explore on that question. That's what the Q&A is for. Let me move on to the question. Well, how do you, how do you go about finding someone? I think very often there is no method or strategy at work here at all, is there? You just met when you look back with hindsight. It just happens serendipitously. Or, you know, within the Christian worldview, by the sovereignty of God. He foreordained it. You met. It happened. Right, end of story. It's not that interesting, actually, when, when you are married and you're looking back. You, you think, well, it doesn't really matter how we met because it just, we just met. So, but this question becomes massively interesting, even all-consuming, if you're in the frustrated situation of wanting to marry and not finding, being able to find someone. It becomes spiritually testing because you, you ask the question, well, do I act? Do I not act? Do I, do, I, do I trust? Does trusting mean that I do something or does it just mean that I wait? Can I do both? 
It becomes massively distracting for people because it actually begins to occupy all of your prayers, all of your thoughts, all of your time and energy in life and your plans. You think that, you know, depending on how, how much you are thinking about the possibility of marriage in your life, it becomes all-consuming. I just want to say this first of all. I don't see any reason to see trust as passivity or to see faith as equal to doing nothing. The Bible usually equates faith with action, actually. That to, to act in faith and trust in God is totally compatible with taking relevant and, and, and appropriate actions to see what you desire come about. The story of Ruth is a beautiful example of this. It's a, you know, go home and read it this afternoon if you've not read it already. It's, only, it's a short book, four chapters long. And Ruth, her husband dies. And uh, she's a widow. She, she travels with her mother-in-law, back to her mother-in-law's homeland, which is Israel. And uh, she gets to work, gleaning fields. And it just so happens that she ends up in the field of a man called Boaz. Now, Boaz happens also to be what's called a kinsman redeemer. In other words, he has a a right, an option to marry and redeem Ruth as a widow in order to give her security in a home. And Naomi, when she discovers this, the mother-in-law, she is excited. You can kind of feel it in the text when you're reading the story. And she's like, you're in the right field. Go back. Do some more gleaning. And, uh, and then she gives a little bit more advice. She's like, and, and when you go, you know, do this, that, and the other. And just so communicate to him that you are available and you are interested. And I always think this is just an affirmation that, that God has, you know, that it's totally appropriate within the sovereignty of God to take actions that that put you in a position where you are going to meet someone who could be your spouse. And that's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with this. I wanted to get into a question here, though, of the huge question of the online-offline thing, which, you know, I've just got to state, first of all, I don't think this is a moral choice. I, but I do think this is a matter for wisdom. And I, I don't think it's wrong to meet someone just by just about any means. But there are reasons to be cautious about going straight to that particular avenue. And I, I'm hearing stories that it's increasingly common, even for people who have plenty of options you know, in their church context, to prefer to find someone and meet someone off online. And I think the reasons I'm about to speak about are, are part of that. And I want to offer you a few cautions on this, just to, to prepare you to think about it. I've got four. Here's my first caution. You're going to be struck by the paradox of choice when you, when you, you pursue the online option. And this is just the fact that there are just so many options and options create problems in the human decision-making capacity. Um, I was reading an article a couple of years ago about this where, uh, called Why Too Much Choice is Stressing Us Out. And the, the article was actually just saying, look, why is it that Aldi is so successful over against uh, Tesco and Sainsbury's and the other big uh, historic supermarkets that we've known for, for decades. And they said, look, let's take tomato ketchup. Tesco has 28 varieties of tomato ketchup. Aldi has one. They said air freshener. Tesco has 228 varieties of air freshener. Aldi has 12, and the author says that's still 11 too many. And what he's talking about is that part of the reason people are choosing 
um, to, to move supermarket is because they find it's less stressful. If I just walk around, there's one option. I just get the shopping done a lot quicker. I know that. My wife sends me out for shopping. I go to Tesco. I can stand there for 10 minutes in front of one section trying to figure out the, you know, the price per liter or whatever it is um, <laughs> until I make, settle on a decision. And you, know, you put, this in, put this in the context of the famous millennial issues around commitment. It's not that people of our generation do not want to commit. That's the misunderstanding of the issue. It's rather that I think people are afraid that something better will come along and that your commitment will be too early. Apps, the online thing, intensifies this problem dramatically. You know, when, um, when I was a kid, we used to go... Once a year, maybe. It wasn't often. We used to go to one takeaway uh, on special occasions, right? And that was how we enjoyed ourselves. So we went to <laughs> one takeaway, got a takeaway, and uh, that, was, that was it. There was no real debate about that. Now you open your app and you spend... How long do you spend scrolling through trying to figure out the best eating option and all the varieties? And then it also creates dissatisfaction when it finally arrives, right? Or you think about how, when I was a kid, you know... If, if you wanted an electronic device you'd saved up, you opened the Argos catalog. And basically, there were like eight options for like a, a Walkman. You know, you might not know what a Walkman is. I appreciate that. Walkmans are cool in, by any, any assessment. But um, it was for cassette tapes. You ever seen those things? With their, you know, so cassette tape, you, go, you clip it to your hip. And... Um, and then you were the boss. Uh, so we used to open the Argos catalog, and you basically had, you know, you just, which one can I afford? That was basically the, ma- the main question you ask. Um, there were no reviews. You just hoped to God the thing didn't break. And uh, you just chose one. Now, these days, I mean, I, I find it particularly frustrating. If I need to buy something, I, I'm compulsive about this. I have to read every review and, 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 and survey public opinion, even if I know that Amazon and the likes are distorting the information for us. And, you know, I, it, it's a nightmare, isn't it? And you think, well, what does, what does choice do to your possibility of making a decision or of feeling content with the decision you've made when you're looking for a person to marry I mean, that, that messes with your mind at levels we haven't really even begun to understand. The paradox of choice. Here's another problem. The problem of shallowness. Uh, and by the way, I, this, is, this is a biblical concern, the issue of choice, because the Bible commends contentment massively. And, and the human heart, you know, it's right there in the Garden of Eden. The human heart has a propensity towards discontentment. Anything that feeds discontentment is going to do you bad. It's not going to help you. Here's another thing. (coughs) Problem of shallowness. You know, it's obvious, but swiping is a very, very shallow way to assess people, isn't it? Yes, no, yes, no. Um, (laughs) I I don't know why that isn't just more recognized. But it's a two-dimensional, literally a two-dimensional way of assessing people. And it's, it's actually also dehumanizing. Um, you know, I, I'm hearing uh, stories of, you know, it's not our church, another church where 
Um, you know, there's a new Christian dating app called Out. They stole our name, uh, Salt, the Salt branding. They stole, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, and the, 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 it's a new Christian dating app. And, I, you know, you hear stories of guys, you know, I think it's particularly men are prone to this sort of thing and this immaturity and, you know, having a WhatsApp group in the church where they're kind of looking which women in the church are on it and then, you know, assessing the profiles and all that kind of thing. And I just think it's... It is really bad, isn't it, Busy? Yeah, I agree with you. It's really bad. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's really bad. It's dehumanizing. And, and uh, the reality is, you know, I tend to think it's a little bit like try, trying to look online and figure out whether somebody is attractive or not. It's a little bit like trying to describe a smell. You, know, you ever tried to describe a smell? There's absolutely no way you can do justice to it. It has to be experience. You have to be, there has to be an encounter. And I think the same is true when it comes to these issues of, of dating. There's, in real life, my experience has been that attraction can grow where you didn't expect it to. You know, someone you might initially have dismissed becomes attractive over time. I've lost count. I've, of the number of marriages that have emerged out of life groups in the years I've been a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Danny and Jocelyn are one example of that. So, just one. Many, many, many examples. And, and what's that telling me? It's telling me that when you put people into committed relationship where they're in, they're seeing each other every week, and it's not committed to each other, but to the group, to the community, attraction emerges. And that's a wonderful thing to watch. You know, it can be a little bit awkward when you're the host. And you're, you know, why, why, why are you guys not going home? Like, seriously. Or why is he hanging out to, to walk with her back to the bus? Oh, I see what's going on. You know, um, it can be a little bit awkward when you're the host. But it's also a beautiful thing because this is it's so much better, isn't it? There's a problem of money as well as a third thing I should mention here. Think about what an app is. An app is a business. And a business is interested in getting and keeping customers. So there is an economic incentive for the app not to work. Because if you get married, you exit the market. Now, how, much, how big a factor is that? I don't know. But it has to be a factor. And this is why these apps are designed to be addictive rather than maybe productive. You know, they want to keep you swiping rather than get you married. And here's the last problem I've mentioned, the problem of secrecy. There's always going to be the danger of sin when you engage in these high-stakes relationships. But secrecy and unaccountability makes it much easier to sin. You think about how common it is, bad practices in, in, in the dating world these days. You talk about ghosting, where someone just stops texting. That's only possible when you're in separate communities and you don't there's no chance you'll see each other, you know, accidentally. Talk about how people use one another physically. You know, their intentions are never right to begin with. Think about how some people just date for a free meal, apparently. Um, <clears throat> or how some are, are basically keeping multiple plates spinning at the same time. Because, because this is like, there's that guy there, or that guy there, or there's this girl there, that girl there. You know, you can have... 
you know, we used to talk about two-timing. Two-timing is tame in, com- in comparison with the options that you have if you're into the, potentially in the online scene. And so I'm convinced, I'm totally convinced that the best chances emerge among community of finding someone who you can marry. And at that point, you know, if the community is your church, you already share, you hope, some basic commonalities of worldview, including fundamental things like to do with your theology. But none of the above problems that I just mentioned are an issue. You know, you have fewer options, which happens to be an advantage. You can observe the person over time and from a distance, not in a creepy way, just, you know. <laughs> um, I've seen that look in people's eyes. So, you know, that, that requires a pastoral conversation. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, just uh, getting to know someone, let's say. There's no money involved. You know, there's no, there's no financial incentive in manipulating your, your choices. And it's accountable. It's wonderfully accountable. You know, it's much harder to ghost someone when you know you're going to see them at church the next Sunday. It's much harder to, to use people physically when, you know, for the same reasons. If, if the community is going to hold you to account, you know, so-and-so acted like this and then, and then left me. The community will hold you to account how wonderful that is. That is a precious thing. It's a protective thing. There's no free meals, that's for sure, apart from life group. So um, this brings us to our last question. How should you conduct yourself when you're in a relationship? And friends, I think that there is one fundamental principle, you know, because I, again, this is just too much to say on this question. And I really hope that some of our, our Q&A can tease out some of the peculiarities of, of unique circumstances. However, There is one principle which, if you abide by it, will enable you to conduct yourself in an upright, honorable, and godly way. And it is the principle of love. And what I mean by that is not the erotic sexual desire kind, which is a good thing, and I affirm that. But it can't be the guiding principle of how you conduct a relationship when you enter into one. It's a poor guide. But rather the self-sacrificing love that Christ showed on our behalf. You know, the way Paul talks about marital love, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus, for all time, set the pattern of what real love looks like. It's the self-sacrificing of one to the other. And I, I believe that this, you know, if this principle guides you, it protects you, both of you, from the upsets and hurts that arise from people acting selfishly. Because basically most of the hurt that, that comes through fallout in relationships is because one or both of you are acting selfishly. It, it, it prepares you for marriage as well. You know, when you're dating and courting, what you're doing is you're kind of trying clothes on in a sense. You're seeing if it fits. And you're seeing whether this relationship, you know, whether the other person loves you in this way and whether you can love them in this way. And if you find that you know, somebody is is basically just interested in you in an erotic way. And there's no, there's no self-sacrificial love going on. 
then you know that that's not going to work in marriage because it's not just going to happen one day when you get married. It has to be there from day one. And I, I would say that this stuff applies to men the most because I'm of the conviction that men, it's your responsibility under God to set the culture in the relationship from the first day. Because, you, again, it's practicing. You're practicing what it means to, to lead when you get married. What will this kind of other-focused love look like then? Well, I'm not talking about a stoical, grim determination to marry the other person regardless, you know, because I'm, so, I'm sacrificing myself to marry this person even though everything in me says, no, don't marry them. I, do, I don't mean that. I don't mean that at all. That's not going to serve anybody in the long term. And I don't, I'm not talking about a sympathy relationship in which you feel so guilty about potentially hurting the other person that you just... I don't think that's loving anyway. What I'm talking about is rather... <clears throat> An exceptionally high degree of honor for the person that you are dating or courting. Let me describe it for you in a few ways. I think this kind of love will look like steady progress to a resolution. What I mean by that is that I don't mean you're rushing. And we're not talking here about the kind of car crash Vegas weddings where you just pick up the pieces later and hope it all works out in the end. What I mean is that you are on a straight road towards a decision. And the decision may validly be, we're not right together. Thank God that we realize that. And you can separate happily that you you didn't get married. But it can also be a decision to marry. And I think the reason why I say this is loving is because I think dithering around is problematic on so many levels. You know, relationships can be too long. And usually it's the guy's fault. It can be damaging to the, to the relationship in terms of damages confidence. You know, why, why won't he marry me? And that can really, that can play havoc with someone's sense of confidence. It speaks of poor leadership, the inability to, to make a decision and act on it. And it speaks... And it also, you know, this is huge. It prolongs temptation. It prolongs temptation. I know from dating and courting how difficult it is to be, uh, as you grow more and more attracted to the other person, you know, you, you eagerly anticipate when you're married and that can be fulfilled, that desire. Now, you stretch the courting relationship out indefinitely. There's no resolution to when you can like in a godly way consummate the marriage I think at some point sin almost becomes inevitable doesn't it I'm not saying that you ever have an excuse but it seems to me like you're just setting a trap for yourself and the flip side to that is I think sometimes when relationships are going on too long the reason is because you've already found satisfaction sexually and there's therefore now no incentive to get married quickly so Love will look like a steady progress to a resolution, whether that's separating or getting married. And I, I just want to urge, you know, men, you have to make up your minds. Here's the second thing. Love will look like the highest standards of purity. <coughs> Sexual desire is a beautiful, God-given reality, but it is massively ha- hazardous uh, in that relationship. And even more so in... You know, I, I would say it's massively hazardous when it's indulged because outside marriage because it very quickly takes over. You know, when, you, when you're getting to know somebody and you're wanting to develop intimacy, 
that is emotional and intellectual and understanding what the other person is about. The moment things become physical, it can short-circuit the process of getting to know the other person and even stump the relationship's growth. It also has the effect, if you're a Christian, you have a soft conscience and the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. It can have the effect of producing guilt which rots away at the relationship and eats away from the inside out. And I don't think this warning can be overstated. And it's not that there isn't grace. If you're in a relationship and you feel like you've gone too far, praise God. What do you do? You go and tell a trusted couple who are mature and have some kind of responsibility, maybe like your life group leaders, you confess, you pray together, you establish boundaries, you ask them to hold you accountable, you make sure that they, you insist that they must ask you the right questions until the day you get married. How do you determine, though, what's okay? I think this is insanely difficult in our day and age because there are no communal safeguards anymore. You know, it was once upon a time you couldn't even be alone together. So the chances of, of, of uh, sleeping together or anything else, to be honest, were so minuscule. It wasn't even a question you had to ask. And unfortunately, in our day and age, all of those protections and safeguards have been removed, haven't they? And nobody really questions your behavior anymore or asks about what's going on in secret. Now, this amused me reading um, Matt Chandler on this subject. He said, now, he's talking about... Um, you know, when you're dating and, and you say, hey, do you want to come around for a movie tonight? And he says, now, can we all just be honest here? Nothing good and godly ever happens between dating couples when they lie on a couch together late at night to watch a movie. He says, it has never in the history of humankind led to discussions about cinematography or the symbolic resonance of the director's body of work or whatever. He said, it starts with snuggling, then it turns into mouth-to-mouth, hands-to-body, then progresses until one of you gets a cooler head or you both lose your heads altogether. And I just say that because, you know, we live in a day and an age where things which would have been questioned once upon a time are no longer questioned. So you have to establish, you have to make those decisions in advance. You know, it, was, it would have been impossible for you to hang out and have a movie together once upon a time. That isn't true today. I think one example of this for Christians that I've encountered too many times over the years is when dating couples go alone together on holiday. And I just remember back to when I was dating C and think that would have been disastrous for us to be alone an extended period of time in that way. Disastrous. In fact, I, I had one story of a guy I knew in a, in a previous church who had become my friend, and he was dating a girl, and he, he, he asked to get me lunch one day, and he sat down, and he, he poured out how you know, they were really struggling to remain uh, pure in their relationship, and you know, they'd come close to sleeping together, but it, it hadn't happened. And I gave him some straight words, and we prayed together. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, he told me about how they were going to be going on holiday together. And I told him straight. I said, I said to him, there's no way you can go on holiday. And, uh, you know, he didn't, want to, he didn't want to cancel. They'd already paid for the thing. And he was obviously excited to be going away. Do you know, that was the last time I ever saw him. And I can't help but assume the worst. Because... You know, when you make foolish decisions in the cold light of day, you're asking for trouble in the heat of the moment. 
The question then of how you should treat somebody when it comes to matters of sex and purity is not an easy one to settle because we find among Christians huge disagreement. But I think that the principle is simply this. I think you should treat them as though they might marry someone else. Because until you say your vows together, I don't care how certain you are that this thing is going to work out. I've seen engagements break up. Until you say your vows, they, that person you're with may marry somebody else. That's the fact. And you've got to ask yourself, if this ended, could I look back and say I honored their conscience? I upheld their conscience. Can you say, you know, could I face their future spouse without embarrassment and memories of the things we did together? Maybe even... Could I do what we're doing with their future spouse watching? I think we have to hold each other in such high regard that those are the tests that we submit ourselves to when it comes to matters of sexual purity before marriage. And God knows it's not easy. The last thing I want to say is that love will look like a willingness to offer commitment. We're the least likely generation ever to get married. Fear of failure, paralysis of choice, impossible standards. I've talked about a number of these things. But the Bible says, listen, one of the great problems is this assumption that people think love moves towards commitment and that it's a one-way street. And I think the Bible shows us that it's actually a two-way street, that commitment also moves towards love. Commitment produces love and affection. And I experienced this firsthand. This, this is the lifeblood of a marriage, by the way. Because when you're married, you've made the commitment. The commitment is past tense. But the feeling of love can evaporate. You know, you can be angry with your spouse or feel unattracted to them at any given moment. How does love emerge in such a context? What hope is there for marriage? And the answer is, well, commitment produces love. And I would say this is an important thing to understand, <clears throat> even as you're dating and courting. I've told you in the past, and it's true, that I had moments in my relationship with C when I had severe doubts. I look back and think, what a fool, you know. <laughs> but I had doubts at the time for various reasons. I wasn't sure, like when we were just sort of, sort of going out and we hadn't you know, made any promises to one another. And I came very close on one occasion to breaking up. You know, I'd planned to. I'd gone to see her with that intention. And then I felt a kind of inner compulsion not to. Maybe I was just afraid. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, it, what happened was that I know in my experience that there were moments when I crossed thresholds. And it wasn't that <clears throat> my affection grew so much that I then felt no doubt. It was the other way around. I made... I made decisions in my heart. I'm going to remain committed to this woman. And with the decision came peace. The doubts began to evaporate. The biggest decision of all was when the moment I got engaged to her. <clears throat> From then on, I didn't look back. And it was amazing how the act, the will to commit, changed the way I regarded C and our relationship. This is the power of promising. I love this quote from a man called Lewis Smedes. He says, when you make a promise, 
you tie yourself to other persons by the unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you are stuck with. When everything else tells them that they can count on nothing, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. You have made a promise that you intend to keep. The biblical mandate for commitment begins with the reality of Jesus and his commitment towards us. You read in the Gospels of how he set his face to go to Jerusalem, which is the most unbelievable, astonishing example of commitment to a people. He went into the heart of darkness to the people who hated him most in order to demonstrate his love for those same people. He committed himself to save a people, even as he was surrounded by hatred and the vilification and rejection that he was experiencing. And it is Christ's demonstration of his pursuit of his bride, of his committed love towards us, which gives us the courage and dignity, the power of the Spirit to be able to commit and to know this is for life. Love will move to that position of commitment, and commitment will produce love. Amen? Amen. Amen.